Welcome to Medici Podcast. This is episode 33, The Friar and the King. behind the Medici Golden Age. This episode marks the start of a new season, The Holy Family. It's an era that begins with the Medici being driven out of their home city. By rights, they should have faded into obscurity, like countless other ruling families who had been deposed. Yet, ironically, this will be the time when they really left their mark on European and even world history. A Medici would assume the role of antagonist in a little tiff you might have heard of called the Protestant Reformation. The family would also, like that other great Italian family, the Borgias, take a part in the story of how the golden age of the Italian city-states drew to a close, and how Italy would lose much of its independence to the great powers of Europe for roughly 300 years. Basically, this season is about how a dynasty stripped of political power and the bank they found it, and driven into exile, just simply refused to step off the stage of history. Sadly, though, Pietro knew none of this. All he did know in the winter of 1494 was that the odds were pretty good he and his brothers and children would never see Florence again. The Signora of Florence had officially banished him and his brothers. Also the Signore ruling Bologna, Giovanni Bentivoglio, only coolly welcomed the Medici, since he was worried that the man who gave him the troops and money that helped prop up his regime, Duke Ludovico of Milan, would stop writing the checks, simply because he offered hospitality to the Medici. Rightfully worried that Bentivoglio was just waiting for some pretext to imprison them, Piero and Giovanni de' Medici quietly moved on to Venice, Ironically, the same refuge where Piero's great-grandfather Cosimo, in similar circumstances, ended up. One of the great banking dynasties of Venice, the Lippomani, put the Medici up in one of their villas. Still, though, charity only goes so far even for the great and powerful, and Piero would find himself obliged to sell off his father's collection of jewels. This was especially once the Signora of Florence confiscated all the funds of the Medici Bank, which was practically bankrupt by the time Piero was overthrown anyway. During this chaotic time, Piero fired off multiple letters to the Signora. His tone was generally apologetic, but he still fought back against accusations of tyranny. Also, he asked the Signora to send him and his family some clothes from the Palazzo Medici, which they dutifully did in order to, in their own words, quiet him down. Indeed, he claimed all he wanted was a chance to return to Florence and live quietly as a private citizen with his children. To Pietro's credit, it was Charles VIII and his advisors who floated the idea of forcing the Signora to reinstall Pietro, and Pietro declined, or at least made a show of doing so. 
When Piero did finally lose his temper, it was with Duke Ludovico, whom Piero with good reason blamed for his family's downfall. He wrote to Ludovico asking for money, perhaps funds which Ludovico did actually owe to the bank, but instead Ludovico responded with a letter that was apparently, quote, brusque and acerbic. Ludovico refused to give Piero a dime, but he did offer to let the Medici take refuge in Milan. Piero fired back that since his life was all he had left, he would not trust it to Ludovico. But let's leave Piero stewing in Venice and turn our attention to a man who I've been keeping off the stage until now. Girolamo Savonarola. He was born on September 21st, 1452 the third of seven children of Niccolò Savonarola and Elena Bonacosi. His mother was descended from an aristocratic family that once ruled Mantua. Meanwhile, his father was a merchant, and his paternal grandfather, Michele Savonarola, taught medicine at the University of Padua and was the court physician of Duke Niccolò III of Ferrara. However, the Savonarolas had fallen on hard times and were on the brink of at least relative poverty, since Niccolo Savonarola's business ventures had a tendency to end in failure. Like most families of the Renaissance middle class, his parents hoped Savonarola would go to a university and then get a job as a government official or enter medicine or law. Later writings about Savonarola would claim that even as a child, he showed signs that he instead felt a calling from God. Instead of childhood games, these accounts claim he was more interested in prayer or building little altars. But these are all just tropes and cliches common to most medieval biographies of saints, although we do get the probably authentic details from them that even as an adolescent, Savonarola was the introverted sort who preferred going on solitary walks in nature, and that he enjoyed playing the lute and sketching in a sketchbook. Certainly, at first, he did take the normal track his parents wanted for him, and became a student at the University of Ferrara, where he studied philosophy and at least some medicine. At some point, that changed drastically, and Savonarola reluctantly decided to join the church as a friar in the Dominican order. Why he radically changed course in life isn't clear, but I don't think, even if we could call up Savonarola through an Ouija board and interview him, he'd be able to explain it. After all, even in our less religiously charged times, it can be difficult for people to articulate why they ended up converting to a new religion or making a life-changing commitment to a religious organization. One of the rare clues is in the words that Savonarola did say to a young Florentine man late in his life. When I was in the world, I said a thousand times that I would never become a friar. Yet I had to go when it pleased God. I couldn't eat, and I kept going around in circles. When a person gets the idea he can't sleep, then once he arrives, he lives entirely contented. There is an intriguing little hint about Savonarola's origin story in the form of a tale that apparently came from Savonarola's own brother, Mauro, and which is believable precisely because it doesn't put Savonarola in the best light, especially by the standards of saints. 
While he was at the university, he met and fell in love with Laudamia Strazzi. If you remember past episodes, the Strazzi were one of the Medici's main rivals in the world of banking. Laudamia was an illegitimate daughter of the family. Laudamia and Savonarola struck up a friendship and would talk to each other from their bedroom windows across the alley that separated their family's two houses. One day, Savonarola worked up his nerve and proposed to her. Laudamia brutally turned him down, allegedly saying, Do you think that the blood of the great house of Strozzi would deign to be united with the house of Savonarola? Supposedly, Savonarola snapped back. And do you think that the house of Savonarola would care to give one of its legitimate sons to a bastard like you? Perhaps not coincidentally. Savonarola's decision to join the church came soon after the spat. Honestly, between this and the attitude Savonarola would show toward women the rest of his life, I really do suspect that if he had been born somewhere in the English-speaking world in our time, Savonarola would have ended up posting memes about alpha and beta males to 4chan. Anyway, whatever drove him, Savonarola was staying with his parents when he decided to take the fateful step. One day, he would secretly leave home to join a monastery. He left behind a letter to his father, which read, I have no doubt that my departure is very painful to you, particularly because I stole away so secretly. But by this letter, I want you to understand my soul and will, so that you may take comfort from it and realize that I have not made this move in so childish a way as some people think. And first of all, I want you, as a manly spirit and disdainer of fleeting things, to be swayed by truth, rather than, as women are, by passion, and to judge in accordance with the empire of reason whether or not I was right to flee from the world to pursue my own calling. Answer me, therefore. Is it not some great good for a man to flee from the filth and iniquities of the wretched world in order to live as a rational being and not live as a beast among swine? And would mine not have been a great ingratitude to have prayed to God to show me the straight way to take he having stooped to show it to me, and then not to take it. Given that his parents' hope hinged on Savonarola bringing in a fat income, their reaction is understandable. It certainly didn't help that when Savonarola's mother wrote to him asking for money to support the family, his only answer was that she and his sisters should give up their worldly cares and join the monastic life like him. I doubt Savonarola would have given them money in any case, but it certainly didn't help that Savonarola's career in the church didn't take off right away. He didn't or couldn't advance far in the church's academic hierarchy, and was just assigned posts teaching theology or preaching around northern Italy without establishing himself anywhere. In May of 1482, he was asked to work as a lecturer at the monastery of San Marco in Florence. Even though he was living in the city that would make his name, he made no splash at all, and after five years, he was reassigned elsewhere. Likely enough, this would have been the entire trajectory of Savonarola's life, an obscure preacher and theology instructor. But then, fate stepped in, or rather, Count Pico Mirandola stepped in. Yes, this is the very same Pico who was a notorious humanist who challenged everyone to disprove his theses and whose writings were 
condemned by the church. At some point, Pico became more conventionally devout and befriended Savonarola. It was Pico's idea that Lorenzo the Magnificent invite Savonarola to Florence and offer him an official position as a preacher at the monastery of San Marco. And Lorenzo agreed. Perhaps he did it just as a personal favor for Pico. But likely enough, Lorenzo also liked the cut of Savonarola's jib. Early on, Savonarola had a disdain for worldliness. While this made him a misogynist and an anti-intellectual, at one point, for example, Savonarola bragged about destroying the copies of Plato he had owned and read as a university student. He also had a skepticism of worldliness and church politics that was appealing at a time when the high clergy of the church was flaunting their wealth more than ever. The ambitions of Pope Sixtus IV for his family, and the fact those ambitions led to wars across Italy, appalled Savonarola. In a poem he wrote after the death of Pope Sixtus, he begged Jesus to forgive the papacy, declaring in two verses, I see nothing but swords, Jesus forgive our iniquities. Contrary to what one might think, especially if you grew up in a majority Protestant Christian country, the Catholic Church at the time actually did tolerate criticism, just within certain boundaries. And Savonarola was not shy about denouncing worldly, ambitious prelates of the Church. This was the same time Lorenzo himself was locking horns with the Pope. So maybe cultivating Savonarola was a subtle way of undermining the church. If so, though, Savonarola proved to be too good a weapon. He didn't shy away from also decrying the poverty and inequality he saw in Florence as a whole. Now, don't get me wrong, there wasn't a concept of separation of church and state at the time, and humanists believed the rulers of state should look toward both Socrates and Jesus as their moral models. However, it was still one thing for a preacher to urge the people in power to embrace Christian virtues, to call for peace, and to decry the sins and luxuries of the rich and powerful. It was another thing entirely for a preacher to almost explicitly comment on the actual policies of the government, which was something Savonarola did more and more frequently. Although Savonarola did have enough sense to name no names. Nor was Savonarola tolerant of the humanist trends Lorenzo had encouraged. He denounced everything from nude statues, to clerics translating and reading pagan writers, to secular poets. Savonarola also began to suggest he had the gift of prophecy, and that he foresaw judgment coming for Italy. An example were his Lent sermons of 1491, which called out the Signora, to change their ways and make Florence a truly holy city by punishing immorality, uplifting the poor, and keeping Florence out of wars. It were these sermons that finally made Savonarola a household name around Florence. But this only made Lorenzo the Magnificent even more uncomfortable about this force that he had conjured up in his own city. Still, Lorenzo never really lifted a finger against Savonarola. The most is that Lorenzo started favoring Mariano de Ginazzano, a preacher from the Augustinian order who, in the world of the Catholic Church, were the Dominicans' main rivals. Mariano liked to needle Savonarola in his sermons, openly saying the idea that anyone, even a holy man, 
could see the future as laughable. However, Mariano's direct attacks on the up-and-coming Savonarola only made him unpopular. One of the myths about Savonarola, which is still repeated by some modern historians, is that he set himself up as an enemy of the Medici once he started getting a popular platform. This just isn't true. Lorenzo and his inner circle were worried about Savonarola's influence, but Savonarola never criticized the Medici directly or otherwise. Later stories that Savonarola urged Lorenzo on his deathbed to repent of his tyrannical control over Florence were completely fabricated. In fact, even after Lorenzo died, Savonarola stayed quiet about the Medici up until Pietro was overthrown. He was even reluctant to approve of the revolution in his sermons until he was absolutely sure of the direction the winds were blowing. It was only with the chaos surrounding Pietro's overthrow that Savonarola stopped being a commentator and actually threw himself into Florentine politics. The Signora of Florence knew how superstitious King Charles VIII of France was, so they asked Savonarola to lead a small delegation that would meet with him. Savonarola eagerly agreed. They found Charles VIII in Pisa, where the Florentine governor of the city had fled and Charles was basking in the adoration of the citizens who welcomed him as a liberator. It was a pivotal moment. As you might have gleaned from the titles I've been using, it was Savonarola who liked to compare the French invasion of Italy to the biblical flood and Florence to Noah's Ark. But like Noah, Florence would only survive the flood if its people were righteous. Now Savonarola was face to face with this flood, which had to be an amazing moment for the once itinerant preacher and teacher, even if the flood came in the form of a very short king. Charles was impressed by Savonarola, no doubt because he claimed Charles was, quote, sent by God to chastise the tyrants of Italy. But Savonarola also did warn Charles that God's wrath could fall even on God's instruments, which is exactly what would happen if he harmed Florence and his people. Charles VIII was so impressed that he insisted on having a private audience with Savonarola although we don't know exactly what was discussed. Savonarola and the delegation returned to Florence, likely at the request of Charles. As soon as he could, Savonarola tried to reassure the nervous crowds, telling them that King Charles did not intend to attack the city. He urged the Florentines to see the fact that the Medici were overthrown without bloodshed as a sign of God's favor, and not to seek revenge upon former members of the Medici party nor should they attack the French. Unfortunately, it wasn't a good sign when Charles VIII finally did arrive at the city at the head of his army. He was dressed in black velvet with a lance on his hip and holding a sword, which was the traditional posture of a conqueror. Luckily, though, Savonarola had apparently succeeded in calming the mood. But probably more importantly, Florence had a long history of pro-French politics. And even though the king was striding into Florence like Julius Caesar into Gaul, he and his soldiers were greeted by crowds chanting, Francia, Francia. However, Florence's French honeymoon was short-lived. Over the next few days, there were brawls between the occupiers and the citizens of Florence. In one case, French soldiers even tried to take a Florentine hostage, until an angry crowd freed him and drove the soldiers off. Miraculously, in the end, only ten people were killed, 
which Savonarola, with some justification, saw as a miracle. Matters between the people and power went in a similar direction. In the palace of the Signora, Charles VIII and his advisers in the Gonfalonier, Pietro Caponi, who in a strange coincidence knew Charles when he was a child, hashed out a treaty that would supersede Pietro's earlier concessions. There was one very tense moment when Charles was outraged that the treaty would give him less of a loan than had been promised during negotiations. Leaping up from his chair, Charles shouted, I will sound my trumpets, a very clear threat that he would give his army the order to loot Florence. Without hesitating, Capone grabbed the treaty, ripped it up, and rejoined, If you sound the trumpets, we will ring our bells, before heading toward the stairs. As you probably know from following the narrative, the bells were the traditional Florentine call for arms. Charles VIII knew very well that fighting a guerrilla campaign on city streets is not a situation any commander should put himself in. So Charles diffused the situation, joking, Oh, Capone, Capone, what a Capone you are. A Capone is a term for a castrated rooster. Why does diffused fangs... Who knows? The major provisions were that the Signora would give Charles a loan of 120,000 florins, which was a hefty 80,000 florins less than what Piero had promised. Also, Charles offered to return Pisa, Livorno, and the northern border fortresses to Florence once Naples was conquered. Needless to say, this provision would have come as a surprise to the citizens of Pisa, who had greeted Charles as a liberator. The one big snag was what to do with Pietro de' Medici. There was no question of putting Pietro's cousins in power. That ship had sailed the very minute Pietro was driven out of Florence. Pietro's wife Alfonsina and her mother, who were holed up in a convent in the suburbs of Florence, had showered Charles's advisors with bribes to try to get the king to put the Medici back in power. But Charles, or at least his advisors, knew the tide had turned decisively. The most Charles asked of the Signora was that they lift Pietro's exile, with the understanding that Charles would do nothing to help put Pietro back into power unless the people of Florence voted to restore him. Whatever promises Charles and his spokespeople had made Pietro, the king was satisfied with this. After all, the last thing Charles wanted was to get bogged down in Florentine politics. There is a story reported as fact in some of the early biographies of Savonarola that he came across Charles in armor and on the verge of letting his army loot Florence. Only Savonarola, invoking the righteous wrath of God, got Charles to end the occupation, promise not to harm Florence, and move on. This is definitely rubbish. Charles did overstay his welcome, but it was just to ensure that the government of Florence would remain friendly, something that was important as the money for his grand Italian campaign kept going low. Needlessly alienating one of the few reliable allies he had in Italy was definitely not a good idea. Instead, Charles left Florence to go after his next target, Pope Alexander VI, Rodrigo Borgia himself. Now that the king and the army were out of the city, 
there's still one more chore to deal with. Decide what kind of government they would have. This would have been a lot to ask for under any circumstance, but it was even worse in a Florence that was still undergoing an economic recession, and that had suddenly and unexpectedly overthrown its existing regime. Simply because the Medici party had been in power for so long, the government was still dominated by former allies of the Medici, like Bernardo Ruccelli and Pietro Caponi himself, and by the old upper class, the Automati. Up against the Automati were the self-described friends of the popolo, who wanted a complete purge of the old regime and genuine reforms that would open up more political offices for the middle and working classes. Even the conservative Automati admitted they could not return to the status quo before Cosimo de' Medici, and that some constitutional reforms were needed. First, they abolished the Council of Seventy, the Council of One Hundred, and the various electoral committees, all of which de' Medici had used to stay in power. All of these reforms had to be approved by a general assembly, which was carried out under an armed guard. According to one observer, quote, some people shouted yay, and this was considered enough. As the crowd slowly trickled out of the square, some people amongst them turned around and protested that the popular consent was not truly counted. The Signora then ordered to have them forcibly removed. After that, the Signora plowed ahead with even more ambitious reforms. All the old legislative councils would now be abolished and replaced by a great council, although the committees that advised on legislation would remain. Larger than any legislature that existed in Florence before, the great council would have 500 members, hence its other name, the 500. Any punishment of a citizen for treason or new law had to meet two-thirds approval. Besides serving as the new legislature, they had a role in the selection of new magistrates, and would have final approval of all laws proposed by the Signora. Candidates would still be chosen by lot, but then the names of all candidates would be submitted to the Great Council, who would vote for the final choice. Anyone who had been considered for high office before the Revolution, or at least had a great-grandfather who qualified, could serve on it. This was meant as a compromise between the middle class and the Automati, keeping eligibility for the Great Council open, but not too open. Although Savonarola played up to the friends of the Popolo who were disappointed that more offices were not made available to the working class, he did approve of the Great Council. With the existence of the New Republic, he used his servants even more openly as a way to push for new laws and further reforms. Not all of his proposals were taken up by the members of the Great Council. Unsurprisingly, his idea to lower the sales taxes on food and wine that impacted the poor fell flat. But the Signora and the Great Council did heed his call for a right to appeal charges of treason and an amnesty for the Medici and their supporters, except for the direct descendants of Cosimo de' Medici. So, in summary, Pietro de' Medici was relying on the kindness of strangers in Venice what was once his family's greatest asset, their bank, was now dead and gone. Meanwhile, Savonarola was about to help make the revitalized Florentine Republic 
a shining example for the rest of Italy. And King Charles VIII was about to humble the Borgia Pope and build an empire that would straddle the Mediterranean from Bordeaux to Jerusalem. What could possibly go wrong? I hope to see you next time. Buona notte.